if you don't know this about me, I've, I've lived uh, not all over, but a fair amount of different places in my life. Uh, born and grew up in Texas until I was 10. And then we moved to uh, Ohio and then Tennessee and then Connecticut. I went all through high school from seventh grade through high school in Connecticut and then uh, Georgia and then back to Texas for college and then South Carolina and then Georgia. And so I've kind of lived all over different places. And when you start to live in different places, you start to see there's, there's kind of good and bad of each place and, and things that you like about different places. Uh, one of the things in my mind living in South Carolina and then Georgia for the last 20 years, kind of the deep South, uh, that is a negative in some ways to me is what I would say is social Christianity. Uh, where we live, uh, I would say the majority of the people I meet would say, well, yeah, I'm a believer or I'm a Christian. And I never know exactly what that means uh, living in this area. Like growing up in Connecticut, somebody would say, you say, hey, well, where do you go to church? And they'd be like, I don't go to church. What are you talking about? Right. I'm not interested in that. And you would know right where you stood with them. Very, very rarely would you meet someone who wasn't a Christian or or was just claiming it in name only, but didn't really seem to bear in their life. And so uh, I'll give you an example. Years ago when we moved here, I remember being at a kind of like a barbecue or something. I was standing outside talking to some guys and I, I think I knew one of maybe the five that I was talking to. And one guy was really loud and kind of overbearing and saying a whole bunch of stuff. And I would say in about 10 minute conversation, I was deeply offended and I'm not easy to offend, but he said so many things that I was going, how do I get away from this? Like, how do I go somewhere else? Right. And and I walked away and whatever, fun. Uh, The next week, meet the same guy, see him in a different setting. Hey, how you doing? He goes, Hey, I heard you're a pastor. I go, yeah, I am. And he's like, yeah, I go to church and starts telling me about all these things. And I went, Oh, okay. Like, and, and I was taken aback because of the things that I'd heard him say and the things that he was talking about. And then for him to tell me, but, oh, yes, I'm a Christian. And, and, I, and I thought about it and I went, whoa, it kind of took me back. And I tell you that for a couple of reasons. One is, is I've had that experience regularly living in the South. I have met people and they'll say and do and kind of uh, give off kind of this is who I am. And then they'll hear you're a pastor and then suddenly it changes. And it's like, oh, yeah, I'm a believer, too, or whatever it may be. And I say that for the first thing. But the second thing, and please hear me on this. I'm not not picking on that guy or trying to put him down. But just to say this, we're all like him in some ways. Every one of us is hypocrites at different times. Every one of us, if you took a snapshot of your life, and and I'll just point the picture, the, the spotlight at me. You take a snapshot of my life in different times, and what I say or what I laugh at, or maybe uh, the way I reacted or how I lost my temper or I got angry, and you took that snapshot and you go, that guy's a believer? That's every one of us at different times in our life. What we say that we're believing doesn't kind of measure up with the way in which we're living. And that can be true of all of us at different times. And I think that's why, I don't think that's why, I know that's why we so desperately need Jesus. Each and every one of us. We need God's righteousness for us. We need Jesus to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. But it's also why it's so very important that we talk about discipleship. We say here all the time, we have one mission as a church and it's to make disciples that make disciples. 
And the reason we say that is because those are the, the marching orders that Jesus gives us. It's the last thing he says before the ascension, after his resurrection, go make disciples of all nations. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, teaching them to obey all that I commanded. And every single one of us, if you're professing faith is in process, we're still learning. We're still in process of applying the truth of who God is and who we are in him and seeking to live that out. And we're still in that. That's our sanctification. That's what discipleship is, growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of our life. And none of us has arrived yet. We're still in that. But I start there and I talk about that because we live in a place in the South, kind of where we are in the Bible Belt, where particularly in our culture right here where there can be this heavy push of make a decision. And that's true. God does call us to that. He calls us to repentance, to believe, to put our faith in him. But sometimes it gets this big push of make a thing, make a profession of faith, and then you're good. And that's it. And discipleship gets left out, right? Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, go get people to pray a prayer and then they're good and that's done. He says, make disciples and teach them to obey all that I've commanded. And so you see that in the area where we live quite a lot. And I think sometimes we have people walking around with this, this belief held very loosely. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. And you go, well, what does that mean? Well, I prayed a prayer so many years ago. You go, is that what Jesus calls us to? And I say that because Jesus is going to tell this parable today. We're in this series where we're following through Jesus's life, kind of chronologically, and he starts to speak in parables. And this is the first time we've seen this. He's going to do this a lot. It's a lot in the gospels, but there's this point in his ministry where he really starts to speak in parables a lot. And we'll talk about why in just a second. But in this parable, he's going to talk about what saving faith looks like. And the thing is, when you read this parable, he talks about four different kinds of soil. We'll talk about that in a minute too. But in it, I think only one of them has a saving belief. It's an analogy about saving faith. It makes you stop and think, well, what does that look like? And so I want us to consider this parable and what what it is he's saying. And I think it's vitally relevant for our own hearts, but where we live, the culture that we're in. And so the way I want us to look at this is Matthew chapter 13 First of all, what is the parable? Like, what is this parable that he's talking about? And and even what is a parable? Why is he speaking that way? Secondly, what does it tell us about saving faith? And then lastly, how do we live in light of what he says here? So let's just start big picture. What is a parable? Uh, If you look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, Jesus is teaching. He gets in a boat because there's great clouds. He pushes away from the shore because they would be able to hear him better, kind of like a natural amphitheater. And he begins to teach and he says he began to tell them many things in parables. And then he tells this parable, which we'll come back to in a second. But then verse 10, his disciples come to him and they say to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And so let me just real briefly remind you where we are in Jesus's life. We're in the middle of year two of his ministry and he's incredibly popular now. Everywhere he goes, there's great crowds. There's people pushing in on him. They're hoping to see a miracle. They're hoping to see what he'd do. His reputation precedes him. He's doing mighty works that are validating the words that he's saying. And that's everywhere he goes. And so Jesus is now at kind of the height of his popularity in that second year. But as he goes, everyone that's listening to him is hearing what he's saying only in part. And we've talked about why, because they're... Uh, thought of what the Messiah would look like is, is off, 
right? In a lot of ways, they think of the Messiah just being a conquering king. It's going to overthrow governments. It's going to lead a revolution. They're looking for all these things in Jesus. And they're missing a lot of the spiritual component of what he's saying. They're missing the things as he's talking about our hearts and what it looks like to put our faith in God and to trust him. And they're all only seeing it in this way. And so what Jesus does is he begins to speak in these parables and his disciples say to him, why are you doing that? And I think of it kind of like this. The disciples are excited, but their understanding is not the fullness either. They also think this is probably going to be a revolution, that he's probably going to be king pretty soon. And we're going to get to be there right with him. I sometimes think of Peter, and this is just in my own mind. I can't, can't prove this. I think of Peter kind of like Jesus's campaign manager. Like, we need to get you over here in front of these people, Jesus. And we need to get you over here. And we need to make sure that people know who you are. And we need to hear them saying, and Jesus is kind of like, Peter, just chill. It's okay. But there he is, like, trying to get them. And so I could see Peter, and not just Peter, but the disciples coming to Jesus and go, why are you talking in parables? People can't understand this. They're not going to get the fullness of what you're saying. Why are you talking in parables? And so Jesus says to the disciples, that asked this question in verse 10. He answered them, this verse 11, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has more will be given and he will have an abundance. From the one who has not even, I'm sorry, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then it goes on to quote Isaiah and that prophecy where it's saying that kind of same thing. And then in verse 16, he says, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. And he says to them, they're not getting it. And so I'm talking in parables because they're not really understanding what I'm saying. And I I think part of what Jesus is saying is they're taking what I'm saying and they're kind of twisting it and they're hearing it in their own way. And part of Jesus speaking in parables is I'm not going to be used There's a deep spiritual blindness that's missing the very heart of what he's saying. There's a chronic unbelief. We saw that even last week when Jesus speaks and the religious leaders of the day and he does these miracles and they go, that's by demons. That's evil. They're so blinded to the truth. And he says, I'm not going to play into that. I'm going to begin to speak in a way that those people that truly are seeking, that are wanting to hear the message of what I'm saying, have to lean in and ask some questions that have to dig a little deeper. Otherwise, they're going to come and they're going to look for a miracle and they're going to hear what I'm saying and they're going to just think I'm talking about farming. Right? Because that's what he says here. He tells a story about spreading seed and that's it. And that's what he says. And if you don't bother to ask the questions and kind of lean in, you're going to miss a lot of what Jesus is saying. And so he says, that's why I'm beginning to speak in this way. And I think part of it is just saying, I'm not going to be used. I am sovereign over this and I am at work and this is how I'm going to do it. But to those that would lean in and ask, he's going to explain it and he's going to show them and he's going to continue to draw them closer. It reminds me, I was thinking about just that idea of leaning in and asking those questions. I had a professor in seminary, probably my favorite professor. I think I took three classes from him. And Dr. Larkin used to have reviews, right? So if we had a midterm or a final, he'd give us a sheet that had 20 questions on it. And he said, you're going to have to answer like six or seven of these in essay form, a page each. And he'd give you 20 questions, big, heavy. And you're like, whoa. He'd say, but I'll do a review. If you've got questions on these, I'll do a review and you can come. And I remember I'd go to those reviews and it'd usually be about a quarter of our class. 
And we'd sit in that room and he'd stay there with us for like three or four hours. And we'd ask him every single one of them. What about question one? We'd usually go like one to eight to 11, but we'd get all of them, right? And he would answer every one of them, right? He would go through and he'd give us outlines and he'd talk about what we were supposed to learn. And, what, and you would leave with all this information that you had to go study. You had to go learn it. You had to know enough to be able to answer it on the test. But if you leaned in and asked, he would tell you every bit of it. He'd give you every single answer. I want you to know all of this. And you see Jesus doing the same thing. He starts to speak in a way that he's not going to be used. But when people go, well, what did you mean by that? Jesus then explains the parable. And he begins to unfold it. And he begins to show them. And so the first part here is that Jesus is starting to kind of veil that so he's not used. So uh, people aren't continuing to twist what he's saying in these ways. But they have to lean in and ask. And I think that's part of it. But then the second part of what Jesus says, I think you see this really in verse 11 when he says, He answered them. To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been given. And I think Jesus is alluding at something here that you see fleshed out throughout scripture, throughout Jesus's teaching clearly in the New Testament. And that is this, that saving faith is a gift of God. That God alone is sovereign over salvation. And when he says to them, why are you speaking in these ways where they're not getting it? And he says, to you it has been given, but to them it has not been given. And in that moment, some people's eyes are blinded and they can't see the fullness of what Jesus is saying. And God is not surprised by this. Jesus is not surprised by it. He'll say over and over again throughout his ministry that those that come and their eyes are open is because they, they're his. And he knows who they are. And the Bible talks about that quite a bit. You see Jesus saying this uh, in a passage we'll look at in a few weeks as we move further along. In John chapter 10, he says, I told you and you did not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, right? I'm doing these miracles and they show you who I am. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father has given them to me and is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. What Jesus says is my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and I give them eternal life. Here he says those that don't hear is because they can't hear. It's been given to you to hear. And he starts to talk about God's sovereignty and salvation. And so when we say God is sovereign, what we mean is that God is in control of all things. There's nothing that's outside of his control. And that includes salvation. And I think the Bible tells us over and over that faith is a gift of God, that God is ultimately sovereign, even in salvation. And the Bible says this again and again and again and again. Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Right? Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is the gift of God. And people go, well, what's the this? Is it the grace or is it the faith? And I think if you study that passage and you look at it and you look at the grammar and what Paul's saying, he's saying it's both. That it is the grace of God. 
by grace through faith. But the faith, the ability to believe is purchased by Jesus and it's given to you by grace. I go, whoa, what does that mean? A lot of times you start to kind of work through what scripture says. And we go, wait a second, that can't be right. That's not fair. If God is the one who is sovereign over and he gives faith, it's completely by grace. And that's the way it works. And we go, wait a second, I don't know that that's fair. I don't know that I like that. If God's in control and he's choosing and he's doing, how does that work? And I'll tell you, those are all good questions. Please know those are questions you should ask. When you're reading through the Bible and you see those passages, you go, whoa, what does that mean? How does that work? But I want you to really think about what you get to at the end. And it's this. You're either saved because you made a choice in and of yourself that's completely yours. You made that move or you're saved because of God's grace to you, including your faith. And it either rests with your choice or it rests with God's grace. And I believe the Bible says it rests with God's grace. That he moves towards you. That he opens your eyes to see. Now, when he opens your eyes to see, you make a choice. You see Jesus for who he is and you go, yes! I am a desperate sinner who needs, needs Jesus. But the only way that I see that in my dull hearing, in my closed eyes, is because God opens my eyes to see it. And I think that's exactly what Ephesians 2 says. I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, when I say that, I know some of you, maybe you're feeling that today. Maybe you've not really thought about that all the way through. And it almost immediately sends you into a tailspin. Does that mean everything's determined? Does that mean I don't have real choices? Does that mean that it's all God and there's no way that this person will ever know? And you know what the Bible says? It says we don't know how or who or even when it will come to fruition who God chooses. We don't have that information. He doesn't tell us that. And then he tells us that even though he's sovereign over it, that he works through people. Go proclaim who he is. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ and blessed are the feet that take the gospel. And God works in those ways. And people proclaim the gospel and you share it with your friends. And you go out and you tell people. And God draws them to himself. And he's the one that does that work. But we struggle with that. We go, well, if God's sovereign, then why should I tell? Well, you be faithful to what God tells you. He says he works through these means. And there's a big portion of this that we don't know how he chooses. We don't know why. We don't know exactly what that looks like. And there's a mystery there that God is sovereign and he chooses to work through people and we're called to be faithful. But I want to tell you why I think it's really good news though. When I come to the end of myself and I say that it's completely because God opened my eyes to see. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy has caused me to become alive in Jesus. That's Ephesians 2. And it's not, as we like to twist the truth of God's word at different times, people will go, well, if God chose you, then that's going to lead to arrogance. Well, look at me, I'm chosen. If that's the way you're thinking, you don't understand the doctrine of election. You don't get it. Because what it says is that God in his sovereign will chose before the foundations of the world, before you did anything good or bad, 
he chose in himself by his sovereign will to save. And what that brings me to is the only way that I'm saved is because of God's mercy. Somebody goes, well, God, why would God love you? And the only answer I have is that God loves me because he loves me and I don't know. It's his grace and his grace alone and that's all I've got. The flip side of that, if I go, no, 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 it's all up to me and it's my choice and I made the decision and I came to that, my heart, I'm talking for me personally, that opens the back door to go, look at what I did. I figured this out. I don't believe that. I don't believe I figured it out. I believe God opened my eyes to see. And without him opening my eyes to see, I would never see. But when he opens my eyes to see and I see who Jesus is, I'm going to choose him every time. And that's all because of God's mercy. But I'll tell you the flip side too that I think is really wonderful. When you go and you share your faith, and God tells us to do this, and part of this parable is talking about sowing liberally the gospel, telling the good news. When you go and you share your faith, it is not your job to, to save anyone. In fact, you can't do it. You're called to be faithful. You're called to give a reason for the hope that's within you. You're called to continue to point to who Jesus is. But God is the one who's going to do the work of opening their eyes to see. And I am so thankful that's true. Because if it depends on me, we're in trouble. I'm going to blow it every time. If it depends on me to be saved by figuring it out, I'm never going to figure it out. If it depends on me, I'm going to lose it. But if it depends on God and his mercy, I can rest. And I think that's what the Bible says over and over again. I think that's part of what Jesus is saying here. To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. Now, out of that, he then tells this parable, right? He told the parable already. He explains it. And so notice the context as the disciples come to him and say, why parables? He gives them this explanation. And then he explains the parable to his disciples, the ones that are asking. And so he tells them what it's about. And so I want us just to think about the parable real quick. It tells of four different uh, seeds being spread on four different soils, right? Now, parables are just short stories that use everyday things but have a deeper spiritual meaning, right? And so Jesus is telling this parable. He's using something that his audience would know and know well. He's in an agrarian society, a farming society. And they know what this is like. And so he says, you spread the seed and some falls on the path. It'd be like if you're putting grass seed in your yard and it falls on the sidewalk. That's not going to produce anything. He says, that's what happens. And the birds swoop down and they eat it and it's gone and it never takes root. And then he said, some falls on the rocky soil where there's very little dirt and it sprouts up right away, but it has very, very feeble roots and the sun comes and it burns it up and that goes away. And they said, some of the seed gets spread and it's better soil and it takes root and it seems like it's doing well, but then you realize there's a whole bunch of thorns in that area and the thorns kind of get entwined in it and end up choking the seed out. And then the last is he says, it gets spread and the seed falls in good soil and it grows up and it continues to, to uh, lead to more and more, right? It produces much fruit. And those are the four soils he's talking about. But then he begins to explain what he means in this. 
And so the soil being the person and their heart and receiving the word that's being explained, it's really about evangelism. It's about spreading the good news of who God is. And does it find a a spot in the person's heart that actually leads to bearing fruit or not? And so he explains how each one and what it means. But I want you to really think about the seriousness of this parable and what it is he's saying here. There's four different kinds of soil, but only one produces fruit. The other three wither up and die. There's no fruit at all. Even though the second and third soil seem to have taken root in some way. And so if this story is about the spread of the gospel, this is who Jesus is and this is what he's done for you. It's talking about does it bear fruit in your life or not? And I think the second and third soil, when we look at them, are people that are professing faith. At least in word. But then he says they get burned up and go away. You go, how does that work? They said they were a believer. But I want to remind you about the seriousness of what Jesus says here. When we were looking before in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, he says, there's going to be people that stand in front of me that say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and we did these things. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. So Matthew chapter 7, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And part of what he's saying in all of that is it never really took root in their heart. And so when you look at this story and what he's saying, just look at what each one is and what he's talking about. The first soil, it never takes root at all. It says it never actually got down and never really heard. I think of that as someone who hears the good news of who God is. Yeah, 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 whatever. I'm not interested. I don't want to hear that. I don't really care. Yeah, thanks for sharing. That's good that you believe that. I don't even really want to consider that. I don't know if you've met people like that. I've had, I've had that conversation before. Like, ah, that's good for you. That's great. Not interested. And he says that they they hear it, they've heard it, but it doesn't actually take root at all. They're not really considering it. And it never even starts to take root. But if you'll notice in verse 19, he says the evil one comes and snatches it away what was sown in his heart. Like before it can ever take root, it gets snatched away. And I, I point that out for this reason. Jesus is saying there's a very real spiritual warfare going on when the gospel is proclaimed that some it's snatched away before they can ever even consider it. Now, as we read through these, I just want to remind you of this. The first soil doesn't even consider, but there's a whole lot of people that maybe are the first soil for a long time in their life. They don't ever consider it. They reject it over and over. They never even stop to consider what it is that we're talking about when we talk about who God is and what it means to have a relationship with him. Did you know there's some really good research that says it takes seven exposures to the gospel for it to even begin to make sense? That you need to hear it seven times to start to get your head around what we're saying? Who God is and what that looks like and sin and sin against God and what Jesus has done? And so the truth is there may be people that are that first soil for years. You may have that same conversation with the same person over and ah. And then later on, as God moves and opens their eyes and does this work in their life, that they become the fourth soil. And so I just want to remind you, as you're reading through those, this is not a once and for all, this person fits in the first soil and they're done. It's talking about the spread of the gospel as they hear it. And some will be the first soil. Some may be the first soil for a very long time. 
but it doesn't mean they will always be in that place. But that's the first one. The second one, he says, it's the person who hears and they immediately accept it with joy. Right? It says the one who's sown on the rocky ground, verse 20, is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, but he has no root in himself, endures for a little while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And so it's a person who says, yes, that's great. That's awesome. Get out of jail free card, right? Jesus did it. That's great. I'm going to take that and that's it. And there's no depth. There's no growth. They're in that really shallow soil. They're barely anything there. But then as they go through their life and as things come in their life, it begins to push it away. Jesus says when it's tribulation that comes. And there could be a whole bunch of examples of what that looks like. But I think of it in, in this terms and maybe even in our culture. Is it people who make a decision that have been kind of pushed into a decision It's very emotionally driven and you're a sinner and you're not good and you desperately need God. And that's all true. We are sinners and we're not good and we desperately need God. And they hear the truth of that and they go, yes, I want that. But then it's wrapped in all sorts of terrible theology. If you put your trust in God and you believe in him, everything will be great. Your life will be wonderful. You'll make lots of money. You'll always be healthy. Right? All these things that sometimes get wrapped up with the gospel. We take the truth and then we wrap it with a bunch of bad theology. Now God does say you give your life to him and you follow him and things will be great. In this regard, he will never leave you or forsake you. When things are not good, he is with you and teaching you and walking with you and using it for your good and his glory. But when we don't have that, and it's this kind of, Bad theology wrapped in an emotionally driven, poor understanding. And then what happens when things get hard? Well, I put my faith in Jesus and now he's let me down. Got fired from my job. Things aren't great. Things are falling apart. Why would I follow this? And they go, forget it. And that's what he's talking about. That's what happens. He actually says here, if you look real closely, he says that when persecution arises on the account of my word... So that's just as important today. You mean to tell me that the Bible says I shouldn't be sleeping with my girlfriend? Go, well, yeah, Jesus calls you to holiness. He's designed sex to take place inside of marriage in a committed monogamous relationship forever. You go, well, I don't like that. Forget that. If that's the God of the Bible, that's ridiculous, right? Pick your topic. And that's what happens. And people go, I don't, I don't want that. And so they fall away. That's the second one. But then the third one, here's the truth. And it says it takes root and it begins to grow, has some growth in it. But then thorns are kind of mixed up with it. And look at what he says about the thorns. He says, verse 22, as for the one sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfaithful. This is the person that puts their faith in Jesus and goes, yes. And instead of full life discipleship, seeking to be obedient to Jesus in every area of your life, we buy into the lie that happiness will come from stuff. That happiness will come from my house and my job, the position I get, the name I make for myself. 
and they give their entire life to chasing those things. And they continue to do so to the point where their faith gets choked out by cares of the world, is what Jesus says. We make it all about these things that are not most important. And what ends up happening is we make it all about that to the point that no one could tell by looking at your life that it's any different than someone who says they're following Jesus. It chokes all of it out. But then the last soil, the last one that he says here, it takes root and it's good soil and it produces fruit. Right? You see that there at the end. As for the one that's sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. And he indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, 100 and another 60 and another 30. Do you hear what he's saying? You understand who God is and what he's done for you, and you begin to make your life revolve around that. Go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I commanded. That's what he's saying. John chapter 15 Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Please hear this. I think I'm clear on this, but I say this every time we're together. You are not saved by your works. If you think you can be saved by your works, you will never, ever do enough. You cannot do it. But what the Bible clearly says is that saving faith changes you and your life changes and it starts to look differently. Your works are evidence of your faith. They don't save you. And if there's no evidence of your faith, what the Bible says is you probably don't know Jesus. And he says that over and over again. Those works don't save you, but they are evidence that you know him and your life is now changing. It's what Jesus says. Abide in me and my word in you. Ask whatever you wish. Isn't that amazing? He says, if you abide in my word, ask whatever. Because you know what you're going to be asking when you're abiding in his word? God, would you be glorified in my life? Would people see you in me? Would you let me be part of what you're doing? And he says, the father is so happy to do that. He will be glorified in those works and you will thus prove to be my disciples. Do you see? And so I want you to really think about what Jesus is saying here. We live in soil two and three in the South. Everywhere. And that's kind of scary. I said that at the beginning. Maybe you thought, well, what is he talking about? That's the thing you don't like about living here, that a lot of people profess to be believers. When I believe that what God's called me to be part of is making disciples, yeah. Because now there's this step of helping disciple people to see that maybe I don't know who Jesus is. And then start to say, well, what does it look like to really follow him? Sometimes it's easier if somebody just tells you the truth. There's a scary thing of a false assurance of making it about the wrong things. And it's not all about Jesus and what he's done. Because when we see Jesus for who he is, the idea of giving your life to following him makes perfect sense. In fact, not doing so makes zero sense if you understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you. 
to everything that you have and everything that you are, that he is your creator, sustainer, redeemer. He is the God of the universe who's come for you to do for yourself what you could never, ever do at the greatest cost. And then he says, come follow me and it'll be so much better. And when we understand that, that makes perfect sense. And that's partly what Jesus is saying here. And so I just want you to really think about what he's saying as you leave here today. Think about your conversations in your life and how you spend your time. How you spend your money. How you process the decisions you're making. What do those things look like? Is Jesus anywhere in any of those? And I'll tell you, you may go, well, maybe just a little bit here and there. Okay, that's great. God is gracious and he is not done with you and he is still working and he's bringing you from one degree of glory to another. None of us has arrived. But if there is no fruit, there's nothing. That may mean that you need to go back to him. Say, God, I need you. I need you to open my eyes to see you to really see you that I would know and love you above all things. You know, when Jesus says here in that last soil, the one that's bearing fruit has for the good soil, the one who hears the word and understands it and begins to bear fruit in their life. I want you to take that and put it together with what he says in John chapter 15. And, and we'll end right there by this. My God, my father is glorified that you bear fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, so abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then listen to what he says. These things that I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The only way that you have the fullness of joy that you are created for is in that fourth soil. And letting everything in your life revolve around him. Everything else you're going to miss part of it. That doesn't mean that you're not saved. It doesn't mean that you're still in process. But the fullness of joy will be found when we make it all about him. Let that be our prayer for each one of us. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of what you've done for us. I ask that you would show us if there's areas of our heart and our life that are out of step with who you are. I pray specifically for those here today that maybe identify themselves as, as that second soil that had a moment of putting their faith in you, but their life has been hard and difficult and they've fallen away from that. Would you open their eyes to see today that you alone are good, that you alone are the thing that they desperately need above all else. I pray for those that maybe fit in that the third category. That know and love you, that say they put their faith in you, but their entire life has been about chasing other things. Would you show them that the greatest joy will always be found in you? Would you continue to remind us of the goodness and grace of what you've done for us? Would you help us to reorder our lives around you in every way, trusting you for all things? We pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.